Let's look into God's word this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. If you don't have your own Bible, ushers have Bibles available. He'll bring one to you if you just raise your hand. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word, reading Esther chapter 9 and chapter 10 this morning. Please follow along with me as I read. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Pershandatha and Dalphon, Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adelia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vezatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susha be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they sing gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for, for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, 
to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days, according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and, Mor and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of, king, of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? Well, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Today we wrap up our series in this book of Esther we pray that God to help us apply this truth to our hearts that we might serve him and be faithful in our commitment and our service to him for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ who served us by committing his life to us. Let's bow now in a word of prayer. If you remain standing with me after a time of prayer, a choir will come with special music before the preaching of God's word and the last of the series in Esther. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for um, being able to come and worship, and each person has gathered here to worship. We pray that you would anoint your word in our hearts as we hear it so that we pay attention to what is said and that we understand the truth that's being revealed to us and we put it to practice in our lives. We thank you and we pray for your people as well as those who aren't here this morning. We pray that your grace, your healing would be with each one. Uh, we think of Beverly and her recovery, thanking you, Lord, that she's now home, recuperating. We pray for Charles, who cares for her as well. And, Lord, we, we think of many, Kathy, that we would ask your protection, your blessing, your healing, for her as well, that you would watch over and be with her. And so, Lord, we thank you also for Sister Lola Spears and thanking you for allowing her to be here today and ask that you continue to heal and bless and use her life, Lord, as a testimony to her family, to her church, to those around her, to all who would know of her. You would speak in a mighty way through the life of your saints. We thank you, Lord, for my father, asking you to watch over and bless him in his condition, that you would um, provide grace in his life, and for my mom as well, as she cares for him. There's others among us, Lord, who suffer from time to time from, from ailments, and we all do in some way, but we do pray your grace and your healing on those who endure, to, to give, to enable them to endure with a testimony of trusting you and uh, resting upon you. 
bless your word today as it goes forth. And um, we just thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thank the Lord for my son for speaking and for doing a, a wonderful job being used of the Lord to study to search God's word and to um, provide a platform through God's word for us to learn and for us to grow for us to be encouraged and us to be challenged as well so praise God for that today we'll be wrapping up our series in Esther, this is number 12 in the sermon series, and uh, we've gone, we're getting through uh, the end of the book, chapter 9 and 10. Last time we did a, about half of chapter 9 up to verse 19 or so. Today we'll come from uh, chapter 9, verse 20 through the end of the chapter and in chapter 10 as well. Let's provide a little bit of background and just summarize um, what's going on in the book of Esther by chapter. First of all, the background of it, I, I mentioned this once upon a time. It was nearly a thousand years, excuse me, nearly a hundred years after the story of Daniel. So uh, that's the setting of, of Israel. They have been taken from their land because of sin. God, through the prophets, had prophesied what would happen. In fact, starting with Moses, he told them in Deuteronomy, if you turn from God and forsake him and sin and, and go after other gods, God will remove you from the land that he promised you and that will drive you far away from it. And that's exactly what happened. And now they are in a land far, far away. They've been exiled from their land. The king of that land is King Ahasuerus, and uh, he's known in history as King Artax, uh, Art Artaxis. That's how I pronounce it. His reign from 486 to 464. In chapter 1 of this book, we see that in the third year of this king's reign, he held a feast, a 180-day feast for his officials and a seven-day feast for the capital city of Susa. And in this feast, he requested that Queen Vashti display her beauty. And, of course, she did not oblige. She refused to come. She refused to display her beauty. And so the king wondered, now what do I do? What do I do with this stubborn woman who won't do what we told her to do? She's supposed to be the queen. She's supposed to obey the king. And she doesn't do it. And uh, so he got his advisors together and pondered what he should do. He came up with this great plan. The great plan was to, to, to command the people in the kingdom to show respect to the men so that the men would be the position that they should be. Now, that, that's kind of a shame when the king has to come and put you in the right position in your home. Um, and that, that's what happened. And the king obviously wasn't in a position of authority himself. He had no honor or respect within his own home. Uh, but that's what he pondered to do. And so he dismissed Queen Vashti from her position. He barred her from being queen. And so now they got a king but no queen. Chapter 2 comes along. They have a process to select a new queen. And, of course, they decide to take the young women in the land and pick among the most beautiful of these young women to be queen. So there's actually a beauty contest, and women are prepared in their beauty uh, uh, aids and so forth and uh, um, presented before the king, uh, and he finally chooses one. Among the group that's prepared to go before the queen is this one, Esther. She's a beautiful one. It just seems, everything in, in the book of Esther seems to be by random. In fact, we're going to tie that into chapter 9 and 10. It just seems, so it just so happens now that Esther is among this group of beautiful women. And it just so happens that the king chooses her to be queen among all the, the women 
uh, in his kingdom. Also, um, we're introduced in chapter 2 to Mordecai as well, who is serving as Esther. He is Esther's cousin, actually, but he's older, and he has uh, raised Esther from a youth because her parents had died. He's taken her in his own household, and she is like a daughter to him. Um, And so also in chapter 2, we see that um, there's a plot against the king, and Mordecai gets wind of it. He warns the king about it, and and, uh, the king is able to search out and find out who's plotted against them, and he, he executes the, the, the two men who, were, uh, uh, who, who had done this deed or who had planned this plot against him. Mordecai was the one who gave the warning, but he was not acknowledged for what he had done at that time. Chapter 3, then, we're introduced to the wicked man, Haman. Uh, we realize that this man is an enemy of the Jews, um, but we don't know it yet. We just we have to see how that develops. And, and so in chapter 3, he's promoted by the king. All of the servants of the king are commanded to bow down before him. But Mordecai, excuse me, yes, Mordecai refuses to bow down before him. And so Haman hates that. He checks into Mordecai. He decides that his hatred for, for uh, Mordecai is so strong, he wants not only to kill Mordecai, but destroy all of his people. And so that's where the plot becomes. This wicked Haman sets out a plot to destroy all of the Jews. He goes to the king now, and he gets the king's authority to write a law to have all the Jews destroyed, and he sets a date for that as the 13th day of the 12th month of that year. And so he writes uh, an edict um, that's authorized by the king, signed by the king's signet ring, and it goes out to the whole kingdom that every single Jew, man, woman, boy, and girl would be executed, would be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month. He signs that, uh, the king signs that, and so Haman and the king basically uh, uh, sit back, have a drink together, and celebrate as the destruction of all the Jews goes into effect. It goes to effect into effect on the first month, on the 13th day. Uh, it's signed as a law, and it's supposed to be executed on the 12th month, on the 13th day. And so they have um, that the end of that year before that actually happens. When this happens, chapter 4 now, Mordecai obviously grieves learning this information. He tells this information to Esther, who's now queen, and he challenges her to take action. Um, And she doesn't want to take action first because uh, what Mordecai tells her to do is you got to go to the king and beg him to change this. She says, if I just go unannounced before the king without his permission, I'll be executed. Mordecai says, look, you need to do something. You need to act now. And so she decides that she is going to go before the king. She asks Mordecai and every Jew there to fast on her behalf so that um, uh, she can prepare to go before the king. And she, they do that, and uh, she prepares. Chapter 5, she goes before the king. He acknowledges her, listens to her request. Uh, she asks Uh, um, well she doesn't say what she asked yet but uh, as she goes before the king uh, she oh yeah she wants to meet with the king at at a feast she prepares for them and she wants to invite Haman to that feast Haman rejoices that he's invited to this special feast but as he goes home he sees Mordecai and he just is infuriated with it and he plans now, not only to destroy all the Jews, but he wants to hang Mordecai first. And he goes home and he schemes up this plot to build some gallows to hang Mordecai on. The very next day, he plans to go to the king and carry that out. Chapter 6 now. The, this is the night before, uh, this is the night that the gallows are built, and the night before Mordecai is going, excuse me, before Haman's going to approach the king about hanging Mordecai on it, the king can't sleep. He reviews the chronicles. He discovers that Mordecai is the one who 
uh, told him about the assassination that w- was plotted against him, and he decides he wants to honor Mordecai. Haman is coming to the palace at that same time to ask that Mordecai be hanged. The king is planning at that time to honor Mordecai. And as he thinks about how to honor Mordecai, he asks Haman, how do I honor the man that I desire to honor? Haman thinks that he wants to honor him. And so he says, this is how you honor him. You prepare a special ceremony. You appoint one of your top officials to parade him throughout the city and cry out, this is the man who the king desires to honor. And so the king says, basically, yeah, that's a good idea. See to it. Honor Mordecai. And Haman is just appalled. He, he, he doesn't expect that to happen, but he's got to carry out that plan. He is... Uh, uh, um, he carries out that plan, but he is, is depressed, he is embarrassed, he is, is uh, uh, the, the tables have been turned, so to speak, against him as he carries that out. But the very next day now, in chapter 7, he's called to the feast that Esther has prepared for him and the king. And Esther begins to, to make a request to the king. She tells the king what it is she requests. She tells the king that it's this wicked Haman that has plotted against her whole entire race and wants to destroy them. And now the king knows what Haman has done. Haman is hanged on the very gallows that he has built for Mordecai. Chapter 8. Esther is given Haman's house and sets Mordecai over it. She tells the king who Mordecai is in terms of being her cousin and actually her father figure. And the king promotes Mordecai, gives him his own ring. Um, Esther asks the king, how can he revoke this law that he has signed and he tells him basically I can't I've written it it's irrevocable but what I can do is you can write some other law if you please and that's what Mordecai does he writes another law that on the very day that Haman had written that the Jews would be destroyed on the 12th month on the 13th day that very day the Jews are now empowered to defend themselves against any opposer And that's what happens. You would think that the story would end there. It would be a happy ending. We go now into chapter 9 that we looked at last time. It doesn't end there. The day actually arrives. And the Bible tells us in verse 1, now in chapter 9, verse 1, you can look there. It says, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, On the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and eke were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And so we see that the tide has turned. It also tells us there that the fear of the Jews had grown verses 2 through 4. We also see in verses 5 through 19 that the Jews actually destroy and defeat their enemies, but no plunder is taken. And we talked much about that the last time. And today we want to start at verse 20 where we see that the Feast of Purim is inaugurated. This feast is to celebrate, it says in verse 22, the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. It says also in verse 22, it celebrates the month that had been turned for them from sorrow to gladness and from mourning into a holiday. It also says it's to celebrate this, the days of feasting and gladness. So this feast called Purim 
is, is to celebrate these things. There had been a huge change that had taken place. Now, we've noted that all throughout the book of Esther, what we see is God working behind the scenes. The name of the Lord is not mentioned. Prayer is never stated in, in the whole book. Uh, uh, there is no uh, worship of God that's explicit or seen in the whole book. But we, what we see is God working behind the scenes to deliver his people. It's interesting how he works. Let's take a look at this feast to see, to reveal something, some truth to us. It's called Purim, after the word poor. P-U-R is the spelling, our English spelling of it. And the word poor means to cast lots. Then you ask, what does it mean to cast lots? The most similar thing we have today is to roll the dice. And we associate that with gambling. We associate that with games of chance and so forth. But it was actually a traditional thing to do in Israel among priests to discern the will of God. There were several situations that would come up when they didn't know what God would have them to do, and they were to cast lots. And God said that he would change or move the lots in such a way that that would be his decision. So they were to use the casting of lots to discern the final will of God. So there's nothing wrong with that when God directs us to do that, if in fact he does, and he did with his people uh, 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 in, 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 in that time. The priests were to do that in certain situations. It's interesting, though, that they would take something that is divine or something used to discern the divine will of God and use that as a perchance thing, as a wicked tool for gain. And in fact, what Haman had done, he said, look, I'm going to take what was used in a sacred way and I'm going to use it to determine the wickedness that I want to do. It's almost as if somebody who knew you believed in God, knew you honored the word of God, would break into your home seeking to do you harm, but they would say, hey, guess what? I'm going to give you a break. I'm not going to kill you today, but I'm going to kill you on another day. Let me determine the month and the day that I'm going to kill you. Give me the Bible and let me look. Ah, ah, it says, huh, the 25th chapter and the 18th verse. Let's do this on, on, on that day. Let, let, let's, let, let's say they turned to something that said, hey, it's the 10th chapter and the 13th verse. They said, let's do it on the 10th month then and the 13th day. They would use a random selection to determine the evil that they wanted to do, and they would use God's process to determine that. That's exactly what Haman did. So this you said, well, then why would you call a feast after that? Because of the way God did things. Let's take a look here in Esther chapter 9. If you would look at chapter 24, excuse me, verse 24 of that chapter. It says, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush, to crush and to destroy them. In other words, he determined to do them wrong, and he decided he was going to cast lots to set the date for that. Read on, though. Verse 25, but when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. It says in, 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 in verse 1 that the same day that the edict had declared that the Jews would be destroyed is the same day that God reversed so the, in, so the enemies of the Jews instead were destroyed and the Jews became the victor. <laughs> God used a lot that was cast 
to determine the day of freedom for his people instead of the day of destruction that Haman thought he would devise. God says, I'm going to relieve I'm going to relieve my people from their enemies, from those who distress them, and I'm going to use the very day that they thought to destroy them to do that. That's why they celebrate now calling this poor. God had intervened. God had turned it all around. And now the Jews were to remember and to celebrate this day. It's an interesting thing in verse 30. I want you to look at there with me. Chapter 9, verse 30. The letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 promises of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons and Morde as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. So they, Mordecai and Esther, wanted all of the Jews to celebrate and observe this feast of Purim. It was obligated by Mordecai and Queen Esther, but it was also obligated by the Jews themselves. Look at verse 27, and there it says, The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the appointed time every year. What are they doing here? They're saying, we want to remember the day that God has brought salvation to us. We want to remember how God has delivered us from this awesome threat against us. And it says they obligated themselves. But it also says in, in, at the end of, of verse 31, if you read verse 31 with me, it says, These days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. Now what does that mean, fast and lamenting? It reminds us that when Mordecai first heard about this edict being signed, he sent a message to Esther and he says, you've got to intervene. You've got to go to the, queen, to the king and beg him to change this. And Esther said, well, no, I, I can't do that. If I just do that, if I just randomly come up to the approach the king and I haven't been asked, he will execute me. She decided that even though she would face that risk, she must go before the king. And so what she said to Mordecai is, I want you to fast for me. You and everybody, every, tell every Jew in Susa to fast for me. And I'm going to have people here in the palace to fast for me. Now, it doesn't mention the word prayer there, but there's a close connection to fasting and prayer, isn't it? The word of God here in Esther doesn't mention the name of the Lord or praying. But we know behind the scenes it is God who is working this. And so what it is that they are fasting to prepare Esther's approach to the king. And, 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 and it seems to me obvious that, that there is a beseeching of the Lord on her behalf that she be kept safe. And here in chapter 9 it says they now have obligated themselves as a result of that fasting. In other words, because the request they made was answered, they're saying, we got to remember, we got to honor what has happened here today. In essence, without mentioning the name of the Lord, what they're saying is we want to remember what God has done in this miraculous way in our lives. It's amazing that God took pains to, to do this in such a way that it could only be him. 
I want you to know that when he saves an individual today, he does that same work. And he is calling us today to remember forever what he has done. He said, I delivered you from the curse against you. It was I who did it in such a way that you could look back on it and say, nobody but God saved me. That's why God is not pleased when we pat ourselves on the back and say, well, you know, I really wasn't a sinner. I really wasn't that bad. I didn't need that much saving. And, you know, it would have happened eventually. And I just kind of came to my senses. And all of a sudden, I realized the situation. And I, I came and I chose the Lord. God doesn't like that kind of talk. What he likes us to realize is that we were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were on our way to hell. God stepped into our life. He interrupted everything, and he pointed us to him. He opened our eyes up, were blind, so that we could see, and he pointed us to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he saved us. Now, how can he do all that? And then we say, no big deal. I have no obligation to him. It says the Jews obligated themselves to remember from that day forward. You know, to this very day in the Jewish community, this feast is celebrated. Now, they don't know. <laughs> just, just like we celebrate, people in America celebrate Christmas today and have no idea. I mean, they, they understand what, what is, is being done, but they celebrate it with no real practice of God and what he has done. It's about gifts. It's about feasting. It's about fun. It's about getting off from work. But very little bit is about God sending his son as a child, as a baby, to be born, to be our savior, to be killed on a cross for our sin. That's the reality of what Christmas ought to be. But we, we, we have a culture that, that denies that very reality. In fact, we have a culture that says don't, they don't even call it Christmas anymore. Let's call it everything else. We don't like the first part of that Christmas, which is Christ. And so we want to eliminate all that. Seasons greetings, people want to say. I want to eliminate the very truth that makes the thing significant and real. The Jews obligated themselves to remember this day for the rest of their lives. And basically, what Mordecai and Esther says, you, won't, you better not ever forget this. You better recognize, you better open your eyes to what God has done in your life and celebrate this and remember and, 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 and bring it to mind so that you don't forget. So that's what they've done here. Chapter 10 is a short, short chapter, but it's significant. Let's jump into it. Verse 2, all the acts of his power and might in full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to king Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This story we as preachers often say, you know, you got to see Jesus in every story. And I think sometimes we we may try and force that a little bit or fail to see the right picture that the Bible is showing us. Yes, Jesus is a part of every story. He in essence, he is the center and the focus of God's purpose. And since the Bible is speaking or revealing God's purpose to mankind, if we haven't seen Jesus in that, we, we haven't understood it properly. But some try to force Jesus in ways that the Bible isn't presenting. But here... 
becomes very clear. Mordecai is a picture of Jesus. And I didn't say Mordecai is Jesus. He's not. I didn't say Mordecai fulfills every part or every truth of Jesus, but there are some truth and some things in his life that line up with, not only line up with Jesus, but God did it in such a way so that when we see what's happened with him, we would think of and look for and wonder about Jesus. How is that? Talks about his high honor. The king had exalted Mordecai. It says high honor. The full account of the high honor to which the king advanced him. It says he was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. It's interesting. There's not, no mention of Esther there, but there's a mention of Mordecai. In chapter 9, we see Mordecai rising in the ranks. We understand the timeline that Haman had the edict, initial edict signed on the first month on the 13th day. It was the third month or somewhere around the 20th day, if I get my facts right, that now Haman has been hanged and Mordecai has been given the signet ring of the king to write the second edict and, and, and they have until the 12th month of that same year on the 13th day when the first edict was to be put into place. So I'm saying from the first month to the third month, something drastic has changed. You remember why Haman wanted to kill Mordecai? Because when Haman was promoted, Mordecai was one of the few that would not worship him, would not salute him or, 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 or give him the respect that only God should get. He refused to give him that honor. That's why Haman wanted to destroy him. And so what it says is that Haman was at the top. Mordecai was a lowly servant of the king. We don't even know what his official position was. Isn't it interesting? Now we give titles to people to try to, you know, make their job seem like it's something special. <laughs> That's probably what Mordecai was. He didn't, he didn't have a job worthy of, of some great grand title. He's just a servant. Haman was the high official. But now, two months later, Haman is hanged and Mordecai is put in his own house. He takes over the house of Haman. How is it that he's rising to this honor? And what does it speak? It, it, it speaks to us of the lowly Jesus who was born as a servant, who was born in a stable where animals feed and live. But in Revelation, <laughs> in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, the word of God revealing the plan of God says this Jesus is to be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The first king is with a capital K and is singular. King one at the top, capital K, singular, of kings, small case K with a plural. The first Lord is a capital L, singular, and the second Lord is a small case L with a plural. He is king, the one and only of every authority in heaven and in earth <laughs> and even under the earth. That's a way of expressing that he's in charge of even Satan himself. He is Lord of every Lord. He has gone from a low position to one that is highly exalted. We see here in Esther chapter 10 that Mordecai is second in rank to King Ahasuerus. Does that not fit Jesus? Turn with me to Revelation, two passages, Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 4, I'm going to read a couple verses, start, starting at verse 1. 
We got some time. Revelation 4, verse 1, it says this. And keep in mind, Revelation was written to John to tell him what's going to happen and to give him a, a, a sense or a vision of what God's going to do. He says, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the voice, the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. I don't know about you, but that's all I got to hear. (laughs) It says, a throne in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And it sets up what's that throne looking like. And it's supposed to give us this idea so that we get a sense of the awesomeness of the person that's that's seated on the throne. It says in the middle of verse 6, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now, people get hung up, Pastor, what does that all mean? (laughs) I don't know. Why, why are they so odd looking? But here's the key. It tells us in the next verse. It says, verse 8, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say. In other words, don't get caught up in what they look like. Listen to what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So the the, the picture is a throne in heaven. It's God the Father that's seated on that throne and everything around him speaks of his majesty, power, and glory. And that's why you saw all the, all the, uh, the, 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 the special, the uh, precious stones and so forth that are all there. And they all speak of his glory, his power, his authority. And those who can speak, which includes these four creatures, are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse 11, the 24 elders say this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. They're speaking to God the Father, seated on the throne, and they're saying, you are holy, you are awesome. It kind of sounds, you know, in a similar way. We mimic that in our praise, don't we? When we, when we sing and, and when we play, we, we are worshiping God and we are lifting up his name. That goes to God the Father. But look in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, So God the Father has something in his hand. A scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. That was was a, a writing, and it was sealed. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. What does that mean? Heaven? earth or under the earth, it's just giving us a picture. Ain't nobody. (laughs) Nobody in heaven, nobody on earth, nobody in hell, nobody anywhere can do what he's about to do. Verse 4, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. (laughs) I like that. What, you, you can stop that weep, weeping. I got an answer for you. Weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so he, he introduces us to this lion. But look at verse 8 now, 8 through 10. It says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you 
to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What's happening here? In chapter 4, we see all the host of heaven is proclaiming glory to God the Father. That same group of people now proclaims worthiness and glory to the Son of God, to Jesus, the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's saying, look, you too are worthy. God says in Isaiah, he will not share his glory with none. He is unique. He is a jealous God. He is saying then that this Jesus, this lamb that stands in heaven with me, shares. In other words, it's, it's like King Ahasuerus and Mordecai. You're second in command. He's showing the, the high need, highliness, the lifted upness of this Jesus of who he is. That's why, you know, I, I, just, I, I just shiver when people talk about, well, you can come to God in any way you can. All the religions of the world, they're, they're okay. They're just means by which you can come to God. No, God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. He in essence is saying him and him alone. We looked last week, there is salvation in none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. So you can call God whatever you want to call him and think that he's listening and receiving that worship. But unless you're going through Jesus, unless you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you haven't acknowledged God's plan and his purpose with his son. He's second, in essence, second in command. He's worshipped that way. In, in that same chapter, we looked at verse 11, didn't we? Chapter 5, verse 11 of Revelation. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and, of myriads and thousands of thousands. That's just like saying a whole, whole bunch. <laughs> saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now they're in heaven. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Everything in heaven acknowledges in, then, then this high, exalted Jesus with God the Father as God's purpose and God's plan and what he's promoting. Mordecai is a picture of that. He's a picture of that. It says in, back in our passage in Esther chapter 10, verse 3, Mordecai was great among the Jews. He was popular with the multitude of his brothers. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 tells us something about Jesus being a brother. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it says... <clears throat> For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's in Hebrews 2, verse 11 and verse 12. In that same chapter, Hebrews 2, verse 14, it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What is it saying? <laughs> Since human beings have flesh and blood, Jesus took on flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, who through fear of death were subject, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation 
for the sins of the people. But because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's saying Mordecai was one of the brothers. <laughs> he was one of the own. He was, every Jew could look at him and say, man, you, you, you represent us. You're just like us. He's a picture of Jesus who is like those who he sanctifies. How is he like them? He is human. He took on a human body so that he could die for our sin. He represents us. He represents mankind or those of mankind who will come and trust in him. He represents them. And that's why he took on a human body so that he could be one of us and pay the price for us. It says back in Esther chapter 10 of Mordecai, he sought the welfare of his people. Mordecai represents a leader who leads his people in grace and truth. Now, we, we, we like to, you know, in fact, I've entitled this whole, this whole sermon today, and they live happily ever after. That's the picture here. How is it that the Jews now can live in safety and freedom? Because their mighty deliverer has rescued them. Now, Mordecai is not God. Mordecai is not Jesus, but he represents the, the power that God brings and the person of Jesus Christ who stands amongst his brothers as their savior, as their deliverer. I want to just highlight a few things that, 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 that bring this out. Mordecai is a picture of Christ. He's a type of Christ, we might say. Think, think about these things and, and see how Mordecai and Christ are similar. He is an outcast in a foreign land. Mordecai is of the nation of Israel, but he's far, far away from his land, and he's outcast. Jesus is a citizen of heaven. He stepped out of heaven to a foreign land called earth to be one of us. They both take a humble position as a servant. We talked about how that's the true in Mordecai, and we see it in the Lord Jesus as well. Mordecai was threatened by the evil powers in charge. We see that in his life. Wicked Haman set out to destroy him and all of his people. Satan, from the time Jesus was born, set out to destroy him, set out to kill him. And at the moment of the cross, he thought he actually had done that. And this is where Mordecai and Jesus are parallel again. The very instrument that was used or thought or planned or plotted to bring about the destruction of him, God reversed and used to bring victory. In Mordecai, it was the gallows. They were built especially for Mordecai. It was Haman's wife and his friends saying, hey, you know, I'll tell you how to get rid of him. Build gallows, 50 cubits high. And in the morning, go to the king and hang him. On his way to the king, Haman's thinking about how he's going to do this. And then he got there. <laughs> it's the king says, hey, I want you to honor somebody. Haman thought it was him. The very next day, when Esther outed him as the wicked one who plotted to kill all of the Jews, one of the king's... <laughs> Bodyguard said, hey, you know, them gallows over there that Mordecai built, excuse me, that Haman built to kill Mordecai, they're still standing. And the king said, hang them. He took the gallows that were meant for Mordecai and he hanged Haman on it. Now, how does that point to Christ? They built a cross. It's not a beautiful piece of jewelry. It's a stake in the ground that is used to torture and to kill. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that if Satan knew what was going to happen, he would not have incited the wicked people to hang Jesus on that cross. God used that same thing that was meant to destroy Jesus and to end his life and his rule and his reign, he used it now to deliver me and you. 
Jesus, yes, did die on that cross, but his very death brought salvation to all who would trust in him. God used the very instrument that was planned and plotted for Jesus' destruction as an instrument for our salvation. There's a parallel between Mordecai and Jesus. Mordecai delivers his people by his edict. He sends out a command with the authority of the king and his signet ring, and he says, now it has been said to you that on the 12th month and the 13th day you will be destroyed, but I say to you now on the 12th, day, 12th month on the 13th day you can defend yourself. Go do it. Jesus speaks his word and command, and we saw that in, in Hebrews that he destroys the work of of Satan. Jesus is pictured in Mordecai's life. We see in chapter 10 of Esther that Mordecai rules his people with, it doesn't say the word grace and truth, but this is what he says. He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace. To all his people. People today are deceived about peace. They think you can get peace by talking. <clears throat> that's not what happens. And that's not how Mordecai did it either. You say, how did Mordecai win peace? Well, God did it by destroying all of his enemies. He destroyed Haman and he destroyed all the enemies who sought to destroy the Jews. God did it by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ destroys the work of Satan today in our lives on a daily basis. It's called sanctification. It's the work that the Holy Spirit does because of the power of the cross that says Satan does not rule you anymore when you turn to Jesus, when you trust in him. It's the power of the cross that delivers us. It's the power of Christ that delivers us from Satan reign and it's the power of the cross the power of Christ that ultimately destroys Satan that would read in Revelation when he comes down from heaven and he speaks the word and Satan is destroyed in other words he's he's doomed to his judgment where he can't get out anymore there's a parallel between Mordecai and Jesus and the word of God is written not that we just have a nice story once upon a time in a land far away and now they live happily ever after but do we get the plot it is God working behind the scenes in a mighty way he exalting his provision for man's salvation it is God who reaches in it is God who saves it is God who's doing that in your life today through Jesus Christ, and God is saying, celebrate that day. Worship God. He's saying, exalt your leader. They exalted Mordecai. He is lifted up. He's raised up. The people are rejoicing and feasting because they have a leader who loves and cares for them and has done what's needed for their safety. Jesus is doing that for his people today. God is sovereignly working throughout this book. And his sovereign work obligates us to a proper response. One, one response we ought to have is simply being enlightened and thankful. God, I haven't seen you. Sometimes in my life I wondered if you were working. But I'm enlightened to know that even when I doubted your work, you are there working behind the scenes. And every so often you open my eyes and I see it. And I cry out, thank you, Lord. God's sovereign work requires our submission to say this. God, you're in control. And you know what you're doing. And I therefore submit my life to you. That's what trusting in Christ means. That he's my savior and I turn my life completely over to him. 
God's sovereign work behind the scenes requires you to be obligated to him. Mordecai and Esther obligated the people, and God obligates you. But what's important is that you obligate yourself, and you submit yourself willingly to the rule of God in your life. Whether you're saved today or not yet saved, both need to respond in that same way, and that's simply submitting yourself to the rule of God in your life. And I, I, I plead with you to do that today. I'm going to close this message in a word of prayer. But first, I want you to consider what God wants you to do. And before I close in prayer, I'm going to ask my wife if she would join me in the back. We're going to pray from there. Would you consider what is God challenging you to do in respect to his work in your life, his work behind the scenes, what he's done, how good he's been, how does he want you to respond? Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and move in our hearts to respond to your will and your way. In Jesus' name. Before we are dismissed, Donna, would you join me in the back? Brother Cliff Hill, would you close us in a word of prayer as you Think about the challenge that's before us today.